Well, this morning we'll be in the, again, the book of 1 Timothy, and we'll start in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The focus of this morning's message is the qualification of a pastor. Now, every Christian, every believer, all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. Matter of fact, we're called to, to go out and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and that mandate is for every believer. But God in His providence does call certain men out for the particular call to be a pastor or what we might call a shepherd. And Paul uses the words here in this section, an overseer. One that he calls to the church to oversee God's people, to bring the Word of God, to teach and to lead and to help and to nurture and to help God's people grow in Christ. And this was Timothy. So we're in, in the book of 1 Timothy. Paul had traveled around with Timothy for over 15 years. Paul knew Timothy well. And then what Paul does is he calls Timothy to be the pastor in Ephesus because he saw certain character traits and faithfulness in Timothy. And remember that that church in Ephesus, it was in trouble. Uh, Certain leaders had gotten control and they were teaching false doctrine. They were bringing teachings that weren't right. And this impacted both the men and the women in the church where I think there was kind of a power struggle there. And if you remember last week, we talked about the role of the women. And this week, Paul kind of shifts and he's going to be talking about the role of men, but in particular, men who are called by God to lead as a pastor or what we call an overseer in the church. And this morning, in these seven verses, we're going to see clear instruction of what to look for as the qualifications for a pastor. So let's read the text, verses 1 through 7. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So what are the qualifications for the man of God called to be a pastor? The first thing we'll see this morning is that the pastor must be called by God and demonstrate proven godly character. The pastor is to have a call from God, a clear burden placed on him, a call by God. And and not only that, there are character traits that must be in the man of God before he is ordained as a pastor. Now, Paul begins with that, that statement there. He says it's a trustworthy statement. This is used five times, but it's all within the pastoral epistles. And basically what Paul's saying here is that this is a truth that is self-evident. This is something where he's saying, listen up, this is important, don't miss this one, you want to get this. And then he says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Now an overseer is a shepherd of the people, of God's flock in the church. And First Peter in chapter 5 speaks about what he calls the shepherd. 
I want to read that for you. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of the flock of God that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, and not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Now, I don't know if you heard that, but Peter used three words, basically speaking about the same office. He says, you're an elder, you're a shepherd, and you're an overseer. Those speak about what we would call a pastor, one who's been given that designation or role within the church to to lead God's people, called by God to help God's people grow in their understanding of the Word and, and in their faith in Christ. We would call him a pastor. So the office of an overseer or pastor, we need to understand right up front it's a very high calling, and it is not to be taken lightly. I think today many people go into the ministry for wrong reasons. Some people go in the ministry, honestly, I've met, I met a number of them at Talbot because they had family members that kind of pressured them into going in that. Other people go into the ministry because they think that, that maybe there's kind of a notoriety or some kind of a position and, and they want that. Other people go in it because they think there's money in the ministry. And so there's all kinds of reasons to go into the ministry. But I want to tell you the first thing that you need to know and you need to make really clear, if you're considering that God has a call in your life, the man who's called into ministry is called to God himself. If you feel that God has called you, then you need to know, do you know him? Because Colossians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Christ Jesus, Christ our Lord. Before you can even be considered to be called a pastor, you have to consider, are you truly born again? Do you have a living, personal relationship with the God of the universe? Do you know Him? Have you been changed? Have you been transformed? And the reason I bring this up kind of up front is I, I met a man this, this very week who, who came to my office and, and basically said this. He said, I know I'm a Christian and I've received Christ and I prayed the sinner's prayer. He says, but I live in wanton sin and I know it's wrong He said, but basically, God's obligated to save me because I said the prayer way back when. And I'm going to live in what I want to do anyway, is kind of what he said. Careful. The Bible says you must be metamorphosized, transformed, born again, changed. Do you have a living relationship with Christ? Because if you don't, you definitely can't consider a call to the pastorate. So that's where we start. But the call to the pastorate, the call to be a pastor, it's a serious calling. And it's something that God will make clear. And, and God calls sometimes the most unlikely people. I mean, Paul is an unlikely candidate to be a pastor. He was a Jewish zealot, and he was a murderer of Christians, and God called him out of that, and he made him a pastor. Timothy is kind of the reverse of that. He was shy, and he was timid, but God called him to be a pastor. And what Paul says here is that if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. I think there's no no more noble service than than to be serving God's people as a shepherd, to be giving that charge to, to minister to God's people. And it's not just a career choice. It's something that God has to initiate. And by the call, I mean an unmistakable conviction 
an individual possesses that God wants him to do a specific task. One of the writers that I read put it like this. He said, the call of God is a summons that calls a man away from one thing into another. Well-known pastor and preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, now he was working as a doctor, and then the Lord called him out of that work. And this is what he said. He said, it was God's hand that laid a hold of me, and he drew me out, and he separated me unto this work. And Paul would say, it's the noblest aim in life to be a pastor. So remember, it's an office that is reserved for men. Remember last week we spoke about the role of the women, and I'm not going to spend any time on that. I dealt with that last week. Matter of fact, the, the CDs are out there if you'd like to know more about that. But it's an office that God calls certain men to lead as shepherds of his flock. And Paul uses the word here, aspires. Those who seek the office of the overseer must have a spirit-giving compelling what Pastor Neil would call, they need to have the want to. Do you have the want to? It's a desire that you have. But here, this, that word aspires is the Greek word orego, and it means to reach out after, to stretch oneself, to grasp something. It's not so much the internal motives here, but it's the outward steps to be that overseer. And then he also uses that word desires, it's epithemio, and it means a passionate compulsion. And it's basically in contrast with that Greek word orego. And this is the inward burden or feeling that you have that you just cannot deny that God is calling you forward, that he's laid a hold of your heart. And you know there's nothing else that you can do but to obey the Lord. And, and both of those go together. That inward desire drives that outward focus. And so the call to be a, a pastor, the call to be a teacher of God's word, it can come in a variety of ways. For some people, it comes when they're, they're sitting and they're hearing a message and, and the Spirit of God speaks directly to their heart. For others, it might be that private time that you have in the Word of God or in prayer where, where God begins to minister to you. And for some, it just seems to come out of nowhere and suddenly you have a burden. I can tell you in my case, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would have a burden for people. Such a strong burden, sometimes I would weep for them and for their soul. And God would give me certain verses, and I think, i got to share that with them. And it was an overwhelming emotion, and I still get that from time to time, where I felt compelled that I had to share God's Word with people. This is God reaching in and calling a particular person to be that shepherd, that person. Samuel Logan Bringle He was one of the great leaders in the early years of the Salvation Army. This is what he said. He said, the ministry is not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It's attained by confessions of sin and much heart searching and humbling before God. It's not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but rather like Paul, by counting those things that that are gained to us as lost for Christ. So this inward desire is a must, but there's also an outward confirmation that is vital. So you have this inward burden. You think God is calling me to serve him. But then it's going to be recognized because you just can't help but serve. And it really doesn't matter how you serve. You just got to serve the Lord. And I can remember in, in the very early days of my walk, I, just, I had to serve. And I wanted to be around the pe- God's people. And I wanted to be in the church. And man, I was an usher and I was going out on evangelism teams. I was doing whatever I could. Why? Because I, I had to. I felt compelled to. And then it was recognized by leaders in the church. And so you have that inward and then the outward. And kind of like Paul with Timothy, 
Timothy traveled with Paul when he was very young, and Paul got to see Timothy over the years. Now, what Paul's going to do, he's going to say, this kind of a man that has been called by God, he's going to display certain character traits, certain qualities that would be recognized by people. And what he does, in two verses, he gives 12 of them. 12 of them. And I'm going to go through, through them fairly quickly. So look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. So what Paul does here, he, he starts with this idea that an overseer, a pastor, he must be above reproach. There's a Greek participle there that says must, that emphasizes the absolute necessity. And it's not just that above reproach. I think he's talking about all 12. He's saying the man that is called by God, that you're going to put as an overseer over people, this has to be a very trustworthy man. And then Paul, literally in this whole section, is going to give 15 of them total, but right here he gives 12. But the first overarching one that is above all them all, and all the others flow from, is he must be above reproach. And that means without blame, or what we might say, this man needs to be blameless. It literally means nothing to take hold of. There must be nothing that someone can take hold of to criticize this man in such a way to bring shame on the name of the Lord, to bring shame on the church or this man's family. One writer put it like this. He said, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing. People would be shocked to hear that this man is charged with such acts. So the way you'd say this is that a pastor needs to be someone whose life is not marred by sin or some kind of vice or something in their life that it would bring shame if you knew about that. There's no dark side to this person, no double standard, no, no double life being lived by this man. And everything flows from this idea of being blameless or above reproach. And then what Paul's going to do, he's going to talk about four key areas. He's going to talk about his moral character. That's in this section here. And then he's going to talk about this man's home life, about his spiritual maturity. And then he'll talk about his public reputation. Does he have a good reputation with those outside the church? First, let's look at the first one, a husband of one wife. A pastor's home life is very important. And what this is talking about is not so much about that he's married, but he's talking about his moral purity, sexual purity for a pastor. How this man loves his wife. Is he a one-woman man? Now, there are many men that are married to one wife, but they're unfaithful. Many today are unfaithful online with images. And there are others that are unfaithful with real people. Both are a disqualification for the pastor. He's talking about sexual purity here, a one-woman man. The qualification was especially important here in Ephesus. There in Ephesus, remember, they had the the temple of Diana, and they had prostitutes, and a form of that worship was sexual in nature, and many of the men that suddenly were saved had been active in that, and Paul was saying, you cannot be active in that by any way or means. Now, if, if, if an indiscretion had happened before the conversion, that man is still eligible to be qualified as a pastor, but, but if after he has been saved... He has been unfaithful to his wife and sexually active in some way, then that's a disqualification for ministry. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I discipline my body 
and I make it a slave so that I ha- after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's the husband of one wife. He's sexually pure. Second thing is temperate. It literally means unmixed with wine. Now, we know that Paul gave advice to Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach, so you, you can't get very all legalistic here and say that, you, that a person who's to be a pastor could never have a glass of wine. But, but I think the idea here is that this person should never be drunk on wine. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, do, do not get drunk on wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the reason he's saying that is alcohol is a potential for great harm. It, it causes a person to, to, to not think right and, and to not act right. And if a person is if you will, not temperate, and they're given over to wine, then that can be a real problem for somebody that's trying to lead. Proverbs 23, 29, and 30 puts it like this. It said, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complainings? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. So it seems like within the scripture, there, there's an element here that you could, be, you could have a glass of wine with a meal in moderation, but in no way are you to be intoxicated. And also another thing would say, it can be seen as a stumbling block to the weaker believer. There are many people within the church that actually struggle with alcohol and alcoholism. It's one of the, the number one things that we know is a problem within our society. And as a leader of God's people, if you're out there, woo-hoo, have that wine, bring me another, and it stumbles a brother, that's on you. And it's considered a sin. 1 Corinthians 8 9 says, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful, church, with alcohol. It can be a stumbling block to the weak, but also it could be cause a, a great concern for those that want to be a pastor. Not only that, he says that a pastor should be prudent. That means well disciplined, sets his priorities. He's a person who's serious about spiritual things. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor. And I got to tell you, I have a lot of joy when I serve alongside people and fun in the ministry. But when it comes to serving God, it's a serious matter. He's, it's uh, serious about the things of God. And not only that, is he prudent, he's respectable. That means he has an orderly life, a well-disciplined life. He, he, he's not confused about what to do. God is a God of order. And if you're the type of person that can never complete a project, can never get anything done, you start something but you never finish it, then you're probably not fit to serve as a pastor. Not only that, respectable, but he should be hospitable. It means loving the stranger. It means being open to help the weaker. It means open to help those in need. And I can tell you, in this church, we have a number of people that come through our doors that are in need that aren't from our church. And and we do our best to try to come around them and, for Christ's sake, help them and, and be a support. Not only hospital, but, but then he says, able to teach. And this is a key in this section because it's the only qualification that relates specifically to his giftedness and also his function as a pastor. And teaching the word would be considered probably the main ministry of the pastor. And this is also the only one that is different in terms of these qualifications for a deacon, this idea about being able to teach. When you look at Ephesians 4.11 It refers to one person with two functions. It literally says that pastors and teachers, it literally combines them, that pastors are teachers. They're synonymous with one another. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in all things, 
For as you do this, you will ensure the salvation of both yourself and those who hear you. And so Paul includes this qualification right here in the midst of these qualities because effective teaching is woven into the moral character of the teacher and also the moral character of the people. He's saying God's people need a solid word so that they may remain strong in their walk and faithful to the Lord. And it's the pastor's job to help those given to him to continue in the word of God. Now, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, for time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And Felix Brooks, when he talks about this idea about being able to teach, he says, he says, it's not something to which one comes by accident or by any sudden burst or fiery zeal. Guys, it comes from careful study. It comes from hard labor. I can remember one of the first things Pastor Neil told me when I came into this church. He says, when you're going to teach the Word of God, he says, you sit, your, you sit in that chair, and he says, you don't move until you got it. Don't move. It was a great thing to hear because it's true. You labor, and you labor long over the Word of God. Well, some people say, yeah, but what about the move of the Spirit? I think the move of the Spirit happens right there in that practical study time, the time when you're opening to the Word of God and you're seeking the Lord in deep study and you'll find that the Lord opens things to you that you've never seen before in a, in a fresh way. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Now, Charles Spurgeon, in speaking about this, he said, Some people think that pastors have little or nothing to do but to stand in the pulpit and pour out a flood of words two or three times a week. But they ought to know that if we did not spend much time in diligent study, they would get poverty-stricken sermons. If any man will preach as he should preach, his work will take more out of him than any other labor under heaven. Preaching takes the priority of the pastor. And I can tell you, this is the one area that the devil loves to hit. He wants to pull you away from your studies. And I can tell you, almost every time that I try to get into the Word, there are distractions. The dog barks, the phone rings, people need help. I mean, all this kind of stuff happens when I'm trying to study the Word of God. Why? Because it's food for you, and it's food for me. And there's two things here. I'm called, and all the pastors here, we're not only called to be teachers, but we're called to be preachers. A teacher... My aim is to give you understanding of truth, to help you understand doctrine, sound doctrine. But preaching, my aim is to appeal to your will and to appeal to your emotion so that I can encourage you to respond to the Word of God. It's a call to you to say, listen to the Word, now respond to the Word, apply it to your life, take this. Don't just leave here and forget, but take that and apply it. From this point, from teaching, Paul says again, now it's interesting, he says again, not addicted to wine. So twice now he speaks about alcohol. It's it's an important part to be careful in this area. And I think what he's saying here, we know that if a person is addicted to wine, they're already disqualified. I think the idea here is he doesn't have a reputation as a drinker. He's not hanging out in bars and he's not the wrong places he shouldn't be. I think that's the direction he's trying to go. Paul's saying, be careful. And then he says also, don't be pugnacious. That means not to be a giver of blows. It means don't be a fighter. We're to be lovers, not fighters. He's saying, be gentle right after that instead. Be peaceable. That means reluctant to fight. 
Be the kind of man, even when somebody says something against you, you still have a gentle spirit. And then he ends here with free from the love of money. When you looked at false teachers, the false teachers, what caused them to be false teachers is they they were greedy. They wanted money. And we're called to not be lovers of money, but lovers of Christ instead. Let me read for you 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 through 10. It says, If we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many grief. It's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. It's the picture of the heart that's given over, that's always striving for more, always wanting more material things, always wanting more wealth. And it's a temptation and a distraction for the man of God who wants to serve the Lord. And it can be a real issue within the church if a person gives themselves over for that. But this is also not to say that, that a pastor is not worthy of his wages. And that if you're a healthy church, that you should care for the pastors of the church. Jesus put it this way when he sent out his disciples and he sent them out two by two to preach. He said, stay in that house eating and drinking and what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So all these 12 things Paul lays out that these are the qualifications of a pastor. Now, Alistair Begg, many of you know him, right? And he's probably one of the favorites on the radio. When he talked about his call to be a pastor, he said, I was committed to the idea that I wanted to be a lawyer But it was not to be. God used failure and disappointment to redirect my life. Even when I was a a student at the London Bible College, I was thinking about student work or some other area of evangelism, but not the role as a pastor teacher. And I can still recall the occasion when I knew I was called by God to serve as a pastor. He said, I was eating lunch with a number of friends and one member of the faculty He said, the previous weekend I had been speaking at a youth retreat in the south coast of England, and when I mentioned that I was increasingly disenchanted by the experience of making friends on a Friday evening, then having to say goodbye on Sunday with no prospect of seeing them again or following on their progress, he said, the faculty member looked at me across the table and said, Alistair, I can tell you why you feel that way. God has given you a pastor's heart. Now, one of my friends, he laughed but I knew it was true, he said. But I could not see any church being willing to be foolish enough to take me on as a project. But then at the age of 23, Charlotte Chapel offered Alistair Begg a position as an associate pastor, and they affirmed the call that he knew that was already in his heart. The rest is history, right? Yeah, Rob, but what about if I don't have all those qualities? What if I got some of them, but some of them are pretty wonky? They're not looking so good. What about that? Well, my encouragement would be to wait. Because these are qualities that Paul says are a must for the pastor and the church. And let's see what the Lord does in time to refine and work on you to be a man qualified to be called a pastor. So that's the first thing. A pastor must be called by God and demonstrate proven godly character. And there's a second thing here. This is, he's going to talk about the home life. The pastor must manage his household well. Now, the way one manages his home, it'll give evidence to the way that he will manage the church. Look at verses three and, uh, 4 and 5. 
He says he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now, it's interesting, our culture, it draws a sharp line, doesn't it, between the secular and, and the, the family, doesn't it? And so if you were to go on a job interview, they may ask you, do you have a family? But they won't talk a lot about the, the, the quality of your relationships within the family. We see that in politics, right? You can do all kinds of things that are a problem for your family, but it's not supposed to impact the way you work. But that's not true when it comes to the ministry. That's not true when it comes to the family of God. The pastor's home life, it really matters. And he must manage his household well. And I think what Paul has in mind here is this idea that a, that a pastor needs to show love and care and concern and leadership in his family well. And that'll be an indicator that he can do that also in the church because those are the people he loves most. As a matter of fact, that marriage and parenting act as a proving ground for the pastor's fitness for ministry. It's a testing ground, if you will, of whether or not he's fit to be called. This is a man who needs to honor his vows to his wife. We already saw that he needs to be a one-woman man. But the pastor also needs to treat his wife like Christ loved the church. He's to be a man who honors his vows to his wife, and he treats her in a loving and caring way. There must not be any evidence of abuse. There should not be anything within that relationship that would dishonor Christ. Now, I'm not talking perfection here. But if there are major issues in the most intimate relationship that he has, and there will be major issues within the church, and that man would be disqualified for service. And not only should that relationship with his wife be in order, but the relationship with his children should be in order also. A pastor is an overseer. And, he, and he's called to have his children under control with all dignity. And I would say as long as they're under his roof. Because we know that oftentimes what happens is when kids leave the home, they'll they kind of do things they want. But when they're under the roof, there's a reality to, to the, the love and the affection and the control and the leadership of that man. Now, the NIV puts it like this in verse 4. He says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And I think there's, what he's doing, he's making a similarity between being a dad and being a pastor. <clears throat> in both cases, the man takes leadership role and responsibility to help those under his care to grow and mature in Christ. You do it in the church and you also do it at home. Both parenting and, and being a pastor, you, you need to guide your children and help them to mature and to grow. And they know that they're loved even when you discipline them. The same thing happens in the church. As you're helping people grow in the love and knowledge of Christ. But sometimes you bring in church discipline, but they know that they're loved when it's done properly. <clears throat> For those of you that are thinking perhaps that God's calling you to ministry, you say, there's a, there's a burden on my heart. I know that that God wants me to step forward in faith. Ask yourself, is your home stable? Is it calm? Are your children well-behaved? And I know that there's a, a level with that and a reality to raising kids. You have good days, you have bad days. But do you have truly rebellious children? Are they in charge? Or are you in charge of the home? I think that's where he's going to. Are you the leader of your home? And even when there's problems, do they still know their love, even though you have to bring in that kind of correction and discipline? Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And the idea here is, if you can't manage your home, you're not going to be managed 
being able to manage the church. Now, by the way, those who don't have children, they're not excluded from the ministry. Paul himself, he was never married, never had children. So that's not a disqualification. But I think this might be, if if you're married and you're able to have children, but you think, you know what, I don't want kids. They're a hassle, they're too much money, and I kind of like the freedom. That's a selfish motive. And I would say that's probably an area of disqualification for ministry because it's selfishness, not a willing to see what the blessing that the Lord may bring to your life. One writer put it like this, he said, here's a good principle, nominate men as shepherds who are already engaged in effective shepherding at home. Now, I read an article, and I think this kind of gives us a a small picture of what this looks like. Outside a grocery store in 2011 in Tucson, Arizona, a troubled college dropout by the name of Jared Lee Lugner, he opened fire and he killed six people, injured 13 others, and he also shot and severely wounded U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords. If you guys remember that, I remember that. And there was a man, and his name was Dory Stoddard. He was a 76-year-old retired construction worker. He was among the six people who were shot to death. And what Stoddard did is he used his body to shield his wife and protected her, and he took the bullets that killed him. And the next week, several hundred people gathered for a memorial service for Dory Stoddard. And his loved ones remembered the day that Dory didn't become a hero during his tragic shooting. Because for the years before he had lived, he already had the character of a hero. On January 8th, 2011, he acted in tune with that character. At the service, Dory's pastor, his name is Mike Nowak, he put it this way. He says, Dory Stoddard didn't die a hero. He lived a hero. He completed his heroic act of kindness one final time with his wife, Mavie who he always was faithful to, and he always treated her with love and tender care. And then Dory's son stood up. His name was Dale, and he was one of four sons. And he recalled the selfless family man known as Mr. Fixit, who was constantly looking to help others. He said, my dad was always helping us kids or or someone else, someone who was hurting or, or needed some kind of care, maybe just a gallon of gasoline. He told the service, and he was flanked by his three brothers. He said, guys... He says, guys like my father are rare. Now, the article didn't say whether or not Dory Stoddard was a Christian, but guys, he acted like one. And I think a good test could be said is if at a pastor's memorial, if the family could stand up and say, he managed his family well, that's the kind of man that Dory Stoddard was. That's the kind of man that God's calling the pastor to be. He manages his family well. Two things we've seen. The pastor must be called by God to demonstrate proven godly character, and the pastor must manage his household well. And there's a third thing. The pastor must not be a new convert. Must not be a new convert. So what Paul does here is he's cautioning, careful, you want to wait a little while to see how a person matures in Christ. And he's not so much talking about the age of the person, he's talking about the stage in their growth as a Christian. Look at verse 6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not a new convert means literally a novice, a newly planted one. And he's referring to a young Christian, not so much young in age, but in terms of how long they've been walking with the Lord. Because sometimes you have younger men that are actually much more mature than older men because they've matured maybe quicker or maybe they've been walking with the Lord longer because maybe they became a Christian at a very early age. And so Paul's saying, careful on how much leadership you give to someone. 
He's saying be slow to put someone new to the faith in a position of leadership. And I think particularly in an upfront role as a pastor, in a role where they're going to be ministering to God's people, he's saying careful. Now, most of us that have been around for a while, we know that time is a reality check and it tests our character, doesn't it? And I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, give it some time. And that's exactly what he did with Timothy. Paul basically took Timothy on the road with him. Many scholars feel from between 15 to 20 years, Timothy was his assistant. And then now he's planting Timothy after all that time as a pastor over the church in Ephesus. Why? Because he saw the character traits in Timothy. He saw that he was a faithful man. He learned that Timothy could teach the word of God, and that he wasn't selfish, that he was given over to people, and all these quality traits He said, wow, this is a man that can serve. And then what he says here, he says, as a pastor overseer then, he's he's to be drawn from the most spiritually mature within your your congregation and, and look for those. Sometimes it might be a younger man. Sometimes there might be a younger man that has been walking with the Lord a number of years. He's been in your congregation for a long time. You say, wow, I see those character traits. I see the faithfulness in his life. You know, Titus doesn't even speak, when you read the book of Titus, about older men. Why? Because it was a brand new church and all the converts were new. And so the leadership pool were all these guys that were fairly fresh in the faith and that's who he had to choose from. But the big concern here is that a new convert might become full of pride. He uses the word conceited. And that's the the word that we would basically, it's it's, uh, translated in the Greek as typhoon. And the idea is, is it's like a cloud of smoke to be puffed up like a cloud of smoke is the idea. And so what he's saying is that sometimes if you put a person that's new in the faith and you you give them a position of leadership too quickly, and particularly this position as a pastor, that kind of role, they can become proud and kind of puffed up. And and if you do that, careful, because he says here they can fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. If a, a new believer gets prideful, then it sets them up for a fall, is what he's saying. And the judgment or condemnation of the devil, basically the devil was demoted from a very high position, wasn't he? And Proverbs 16, 18 said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. And pride is what brought Satan down. Satan was not content with being the highest ranking angle, and he sought the position, literally, of God. Let me read for you Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. It talks about that. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth. You've been weakened by the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Careful. What happened to Satan could happen to that, that young believer, that new believer in Christ as he gets this position too quickly and, and then what might happen is he might be brought down in a fall. I think the best antidote to pride is humility, right? As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke about this, this is what he said in Matthew twenty three eleven and 12. He says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The man called by God to be a pastor will be a servant first and will be a humble man. Now, I've learned a lot of lessons over the past 26 years as walking with the Lord. And the Lord has used those 26 years, if you will, to, to shave off 
edges and change things in my life. He's taught me great lessons as a husband and a father. He's helped me to understand faith when my family, we went on the mission field. I learned what it meant to actually be a Christian in the workplace as I worked as, a, as an executive for 25 years and, and faithfully tried to serve the Lord and be a man of integrity when it seemed like it, nobody around me was being that guy. I've learned a ton of lessons under the leadership of Pastor Neil being on staff here for nine years as an associate pastor. And I see all those things as coming together to help me in this role now as a senior pastor. Time is good. It's not a bad thing. And sometimes those that are young in the faith, they, they, they want it. And sometimes we get all excited because they're so excited. And we think, wow, I'm just going to give them a leadership role. Uh, he'd say, wait, hold off. And we have Jake Ford, right? That we're, right now he's a pastoral intern. Why are we doing that? Well, we see all the qualifications in Jake. Jake is passionate about the Lord. He served in youth ministry for six years. That young man can teach the Bible, and there's fruit from his teaching. Young ones are being saved, and we're seeing them grow in Christ, and all those qualifications are there. But we want to follow the same mandate here, and we want to give it time. We want to take this year to see Jake's life, to see how he fits in this role that we think he might be called to be. And it's good for the church, but it's also good for Jake. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Rob, I'm not a young guy. I'm kind of an old guy but I feel like God's calling me. And I think the first thing I just say is, what are you in a hurry for? Serve the Lord. How are you serving him now? How is God using you now in terms of ministry? And because what I think that happens is just as you serve in the small things, God will give you bigger things. And also, it'll become evident to all within the congregation, that man is being used of the Lord mightily, and he's called by God. Three things. The pastor must be called by God and demonstrate godly proven character. The pastor must manage his household well. He must not be a new convert. And now Paul deals with this last one. He's going to talk about the reputation. A pastor must have a good reputation outside the church. Um, How are you doing with that? Would you consider yourself respected by your neighbors, by those that you work with, by distant family members? This is important for the person called by God. Verse 7 says, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the godly character of the pastor, it needs to be upright and good in his personal life, in the church, in his home. But now he's saying also outside the church. The Greek word for reputation is muratorium, and that's where we get the word martyr. And it says that he has a certified testimony. That his testimony is certified in the church, but it's also certified outside the church. And let me just throw a few questions at you. How are you doing with debt? Are you a good steward with the resources that God has given you? Do you treat others with respect? Even when you don't get great service at the restaurant, do you throw a fit and send it all back? Are you a good representation of Christ to all? Are you kind? Are you one of those people that always complains? Everything in the negative. You have a problem just trusting God's will. Do those that work with you respect you? Do those over you and those under you in your workplace? How about extended family? Those that kind of know the real you, what would they say about you? 
Well, the man in the church who's being called to be a pastor, he needs a good reputation both outside and inside the church. He needs to be known for righteousness and character and love and kindness and generosity. No perfection again. And we know that because we stand for Christ, sometimes we we have a bad reputation because people don't like Jesus. But there should be nothing about your character where they would say, "Mm, I could take an offense to that. Now listen listen to what Paul says about the religious Jew. These are the really religious ones. He says, oh, you boast in the law, but through your breaking of the law, you dishonor God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Is there anything that somebody could blaspheme the name of the Lord because of you. you know, I remember when, when I, I applied to Talbot Seminary. I didn't realize it, but I applied a year before I actually came on staff here. And I started seminary before I actually came on staff. But they had a little thing in there that, that my boss and the people I work with had to fill out. And it was a whole character sheet on who I was as a person. And they don't tell you, it's sealed envelope. And they mail it out. And then you wait to see if you get accepted. Is there anything that could disqualify you? Well, I went to Talbot. We're good. (laughs) This is how the scripture puts it. Philippians 2.15. It says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Are you a light in the world? That's the question for the person that thinks God's calling them into the pastorate. And then he says so that he will not fall into the reproach or the snare of the devil. The man of God who's called to be in the church and lead the church, he is a target for the enemy. And, and I love the way one commentator put it. He said this, he said, for one who has an unsavory reputation in the community to be placed by the church into a prominent place of authority would be to draw upon himself and the church the reproach of the world. The enemy's aim has always been to destroy the leaders of the church, so take great care And you must exercise patience in the selection of your leaders. So every every Christian's lifestyle, but also particularly the overseer, we're to bear evidence that we're children of God. In fact, we're called ambassadors for Christ, right? That's the idea. I want to close with a a story I read, and it it was written by a gentleman by the name of Ramez Atala. He is the general director for the Bible Society in Egypt, and he attended a national conference all the way back in 1974. It was called the Lusain Conference, and he was thrilled to be there with all these top-notch leaders within the Christian church and the Christian community, and they did all these important papers and, and topics on how Christ was moving in the world. But the most meaningful insight, he said, came to him on the flight back from the concert. This is what he said. He said, it was a long flight back to Canada. He said, I had many papers to go through, and I'd taken a lot of business cards from all sorts of important global leaders I had met. He says, you know, we all collect these cards, and we put them in our pockets, and sometimes we forget about them. And as I looked through my cards from Lusain, I noticed that one of them was not very well printed, and I looked at it carefully, and I still get emotional when I remember this story. He said, it broke me. He said, at Lusain, we had a small group every night, about 10 men who met in our dormitory rooms to pray. And, and he said that the first night we introduced ourselves, there was a president of a seminary, there was a pastor of a very large church and so on, and everyone was showing how great they were. He said, I said that I, I led an inner varsity movement in the province of Quebec. He says, actually, it was a real teeny little ministry, but it sounded really good. He said, and one African man who was with us said, I'm a pastor in Kenya. 
And during the week, we all listened to each other. You know, I didn't pay much attention to the pastor from Kenya because I wanted to get close to the important people. But I was moved when I heard this pastor talk about the stories about how God had touched him and, and was using him in different ways in Africa. And when I thought about this man, I kind of pictured him in a small little rural village ministering to just a few people. He says, but when I picked up that business card on the plane back to Canada, I discovered that it was Festo Olang. He was the archbishop of Kenya. Oling was a man that could pull rank on any one of us in the group. He was a bigwig. He had a reputation around the world, both in and out of the church, as a great man of God. But we didn't know it. He didn't tell us. He did not use his position to secure his identity. He was just a simple pastor who loved Jesus. He says, I'm still moved to the core when I remember this incident 32 years ago. And I said to myself on that plane, that's the kind of leader that I want to be, a humble man who loves Jesus and a man who cares for his people. And I pray that's the kind of man that I can be. Let's close in prayer. Father, we recognize that the the call to be a pastor is something that is spiritual in nature. And that has to be recognized by the church. And then you have to qualify those men. And that it's not an easy position. But Lord, we thank you for those faithful men. Lord, I thank you for Pastor Neil and his example to this church for 27 years as our senior pastor and his faithfulness. We pray, Father, that you'll continue to help me, Lord, to be faithful. And that, Lord, we will, as a church, we'll grow together and we'll see you move in power by your Holy Spirit. And that we'll see people saved and come to Christ and grow in Christ. And we'll rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I please have you stand?